So welcome to our final simulcast podcast from IMSH, the International Meeting for Simulation in Healthcare. I'm Victoria Brazel, and good to have you back again. You're listening to Simulcast. So sometimes the impact of simulation isn't exactly what we think, and... We did two discussions on the final day, and the first I did with David Grant on leadership and thinking about how simulation might help us with our leadership development for clinicians across all professions and all levels uh, of training. It was an interesting chat, and so here's David now. Okay, so I'm here with David Grant, who some of you might know as uh, the president for the Society uh, in Europe for Simulation as Applied to Medicine, or CSAM, and uh, I spent some time with him when we were in Spain last year. Yeah. Uh, now, David is a paediatric intensive care consultant. He's previously worked as the director of the paediatric simulation program at Bristol. Um, he's still working at the University of Bristol, and he's doing some interesting things looking at simulation as part of a leadership development program and enabling healthcare providers to be good at change management. And David, I think this kind of puts a bit of a sharp focus on how we think about the role of simulation in improving patient outcomes. Sure, maybe we train people in their clinical skills. Sure, maybe we even do in situ sim, which lets us identify latent threats. But you're saying, in fact, these activities can help us develop collaborative cultures amongst healthcare professionals, but also skills in change management. Um, tell me more. Yeah, so I think that's 100% correct. I think in healthcare, one of the things that we do par excellence is we compartmentalize things. So we have a patient safety department, we have a quality improvement department, and then we have education departments. So not a good thing. Not a good thing, no. So they don't talk to each other. And what it means is that the skill sets in those different departments are often not what it is, what they require to to, uh, manage change or to implement change, and not just implement change, but sustain the change and, and constantly... I guess, uh, this idea that Amy Edmondson describes beautifully, this concept of a learning organization where you implement care, but you're constantly learning. And so, which takes us to, you know, the concept of safety two, safety one. And I think it's a combination of, and I guess, as I I think, I I don't want to misquote her, but I believe she says in her book, learn from every Mm. event rather than just specific events. And so for us, that journey, uh, simulation has played a huge part in that because I think as simulation educators we get taught in terms of how we implement this change how we engage people and so what uh, for us that was the beginning of the journey and so what we realized is that we needed to make sure that those different uh, pillars if you like interact to to achieve those things and so what we started doing was teaching people from patient safety department uh, concepts around human factors, teamwork, so that when they evaluate things, um, they actually take those things into consideration, but also then understand how we change and how we use our educational infrastructure to implement change that's meaningful and lasting. And so, for example, um, uh, recently we did a project where we used simulation implementing uh, stealing shamelessly from Cotter's model in terms of reimagining how we implement simulation within that to engage the staff themselves to become part of the change. And so for us, that was uh, reimagining how we escalate care within our hospital. 
but not just that escalating of care, but linking it to the way that we identify that change. Okay, so this is, I'm going to sort of tease this out for our listeners here. So what you're saying is, let's say we have deteriorating patients on the ward, we're not responding to them well enough. A traditional approach would be, say, let's run some scenarios with patients with blood pressures of 70, and that all change, but yeah. we know it probably didn't. Or let's run an in situ simulation and let's find all the things that help us in the environment manage this deteriorating patient. But what you're saying is it needs to be more long-lasting, the impact, and actually developing uh, something where the healthcare professionals themselves go, you know what, we can start to identify issues in our environment, uh, not just the low blood pressure but a range of others, and have the skill sets to think how do we improve care, not just deliver care. Exactly. And I think the beauty is because it changes the culture from done to to I've developed this and so therefore your buy-in and your lasting change because this is something we've agreed and so using the simulation to tease out these pieces and in fact what in our hospital what it then led to is that we completely changed our pew scores because we identified that actually sometimes the pew scores don't indicate the patients that requires to be reviewed and so the pew score plus the the escalation uh, or it linked these categories that were sort of different responses within the organization left to these led to these patients being reviewed in a way which then meant that their care pathways elevated locally within where they've been cared for uh, and in fact in our first three months of implementing this we showed that it significantly reduced their ICU mm. uh, admissions which for the organization was a financial saving so suddenly yeah. they took and, notice and interestingly it's uh, it's not the top-down, here's how you should change, but rather the healthcare professionals decide that this is the best way to change, and then that is reflected in the policy procedure or exactly. how the organisation adopts that. And so I understand you did a sort of workshop uh, based on a few of these topics here at the conference? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So myself uh, and Mary Patterson and Ellison, El, uh, Ellen Deutsch did um, a pre-conference workshop where we sort of specifically took or try to explore with our sort of learners and I always feel like I'm a co-learner in this because I'm I think we're learning as we're going along how we use some of Eric Holnagel and others concepts of uh, safety too and using some of the, 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 the methodologies that they use and how simulation integrates with that. And so an example, a practical example, is there's a, there's a tool called FRAM or a methodology called FRAM, uh, Functional Resonance Analysis Methodology, um, which forces you to look at particular sort of problems that you're starting to solve in a way that I guess as clinicians we're not nor normally taught to do so, uh, preconditions versus resources, mm. outcomes, inputs. And then beautifully links the different parts of uh, the processes that you're going through. And what we found, <clears throat> certainly with implementing it with us, and I think it would be the same for Ellen and for Mary, is that uh, trying to work out how simulation works in that process, because they have different functions. So practically, simulation, for example, you might run a, a large systems evaluation uh, process. Uh, and we recently did this with a neurosurgical child that needed to return to theatre where there wasn't a theatre available and try to help the system understand actually how we deal with these um, extreme points to put the all and it really is resilience engineering a la safety too and it came up with some practical sort of solutions with the team as we debriefed it 
but the thing that was really interesting to me is that when we took that same team and we then said, okay, well, we've done this bit now, we've got these points, let's look at this with a Fram lens, if you wish. It got augmented significantly because there were relationships to these things that we came up with we did not consider. Mm. Um, and so I think it, there's an additional effect. And I think that more and more, I think what I'm realizing is that simulation is a fantastic tool that has a diverse mm. application, but in many instances, not in isolation. It mm. is required to link them with these other tools to help us fully understand um, how we actually effect change, because otherwise it doesn't. Yeah, so it strikes me that just taking your example there, we've got audit of real patient experience. We might even need to do time and motion analysis in some situations. So exactly. these are all tools that QI is very familiar with. Maybe we need to do some simulation in situ or not to to examine both those latent safety threats, process issues, uh, maybe even just to get the providers in a place where they can reflect together about what they know are the issues in yeah. these patient journeys. And then maybe it comes around to then the other part of the embedding cycle of thinking, now how do we enable the behaviour change? Some of that might be simulations that look familiar to us. Some of it might be simulations that are more modelling and uh, simulation operations kind of things. So it sounds to me, as you say, this is a call for a diverse application of diverse methodologies but with this idea that we need to be shifting or not necessarily shifting but part of our effort needs to be very focused on quality improvement yeah absolutely yeah all right well before you leave us david i'm interested to know also your impressions here at the conference it's uh big it's overwhelming there's so much on have you got a couple of takeaways things you might do differently in your simulation practice yeah, I think for me, uh, I mean, I've been, uh, I've really enjoyed the diversity of the conference. But I think the the key things for me, um, I guess, in terms of, uh, particularly with Sir Ken Robinson's presentation, which I found fascinating and amusing in equal measures, <laughs> it was really sort of. Um, I, I was uh, struck by how I think we have to reimagine how we interface with technology. As a simulation community, we're big fans of simulation, but I think it... it I, I was particularly struck in his presentations, like emotional, when, when I saw the picture of the response of the patient to the music mm. of the dementia patients. And I think that we need to help our community understand a little bit better how we use simulation, but some of these other methodologies in terms... And really turn our focus to to actually our learners in terms of helping them be better healthcare professionals so for me that was that was one uh, of the, the the striking opportunities and i would say the other thing for me that um, that i think a, a non-educational point of view was just the ability at this meeting to meet with individuals particularly in my role as uh, in society leadership that meetings that I would not be able to have uh, if it wasn't that we all congregated at this meeting. So for me, that's been um, incredibly productive and and useful to realign and, and meet and yeah. uh, create those relationships, I guess. Face-to-face -face still counts for something. But don't Absolutely. worry, simulcast listeners, you can keep on listening to us <laughs> over the internet. <laughs> all right, well, David Grant, thank you very much. Thank you. Simulcast. And uh, Ben, then I guess by way... 
perhaps not counterpoint, but counter perspective, uh, you interviewed a couple of folks on followership, which I think is a uh, nice compliment to the words uh, that David was just telling us about. Um, how did you come to do this interview? Yeah, so look, I'm actually really interested in followership because I think certainly on Twitter and when I'm interacting with other people who teach a lot of crisis resource management, there tends to be a little bit of a buzzword about, oh, we need to teach followership. But I certainly myself didn't have a very good structure to hang that teaching on beyond acknowledging the importance of followership. So I was lucky enough to go to a workshop that was run by uh, Benjamin Berg and Janet Lee Jaram from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and uh, they ran a fantastic workshop on followership, and here they are now. Uh, so I'm here at IMSH, and I've just had a wonderful uh, session on followership, and I'm just wondering if uh, two of the faculty have been kind enough to talk to me, would introduce yourselves, what you do, and where you're from. My name is Janet Lee. I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Kapiolani Hospital for Women and Children in Honolulu, Hawaii, and the Associate Director for the Simtiki Simulation Center. Hi, my name's Ben Berg, and I'm the uh, director of the Simtiki Simulation Center, which is the simulation center at the University of Hawaii's John Burns School of Medicine, and I'm an adult intensivist. Great. And so, Janet, when I walked in, you uh, started with a beautifully activating phrase where you said that followership is a bit of a dirty word in America. Can you unpack that for me? <laughs> Well, I think in America, um, people think of a follower as a sheep, and people don't like to be sheeps. I guess sheeps aren't um, very attractive animals to be, and um, I just wanted to put that out there, make sure that people knew that we knew it wasn't a nice word. Yeah. Okay. And I'm curious, uh, Benjamin, what sort of motivated you to, to run this particular workshop? Why is this an issue that you're passionate about? So it's really interesting that you ask what motivated me to do this. It was a combination of wanting to enhance our teamwork training debriefings and add some context that connected the leadership function to the role of lots of other things. I think in lots of debriefing for teamwork, we end up focusing on leadership, 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 and then don't spend as much time or get distracted uh, in that leadership discussion that takes us away from the particular roles and contributions that the other members of the team make. And that's what followership is all about. So one of the things I loved about this workshop is that as someone who really wants to teach followership and wants to incorporate that into our practice, I've really struggled with finding a decent kind of scaffolding or really even knowing how to teach it or help people understand it better. And um, so your team introduced a nomenclature to me that I found really useful. I'm wondering if you could sort of give us a snapshot of that for our listeners. So um, Robert Kelly is the one that kind of really started to get this term out there. And it was in the private sector, in um, business. And really, folk, people were really focusing on leadership training and not on followership training, which is really the majority of the company. And to help increase the bottom line of these companies, they started to focus on what kind of followership style would really promote uh, the company's well-being. Mm -hmm. And that's how he came up with the four followership styles that we discussed today. Yeah. All so, right. Yeah, I, I can tell you, okay. yeah, those four are the alienated followership style, the conformist, 
passive, and then exemplary. And those were um, based on two axes, um, the axes of critical and not critical thinking, and then um, active engagement in the um, organization's mission and passively not engaged in the organization's mission. And uh, Benjamin, I'm just wondering, if people want to learn more about fellowship, what resources would you recommend they go to? I think that the best resources for followership are the sort of uh, very very limited amount of literature which has been published um, in this field uh, with regard to healthcare teams. And I think that taking a look at that literature, uh, because it's not too dense and it's not too deep, will get you a pretty good idea of how people think about uh, followership in healthcare teams. And then uh, going back to the original. Um, the original publications by Kelly and then by another fellow named Chaleff, C-H-A-L-L-E-F-F, who uh, proposed an alternative uh, kind of softer terminology for these followership styles that we've described in this workshop and that I think can be very useful in our teaching for people uh, who are participating in teamwork training. Okay, and we'll uh, put the link to those in our blog with the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Simulcast. And uh, for the final segment in this episode, Ben, uh, I know we put out on Twitter some calls for people at the conference who might like to talk to us. And uh, one of those was a delegate who spoke to you a little bit about how IMSH has changed. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, it was really lovely because she had, in fact, never listened to Simulcast before and was kind enough to jump on the bandwagon, send out a tweet and ask to catch up on the couch and have a little chat. So the thing that she suggested we talk about is really just reflecting on the evolution of IMSH as a participant as uh, Amy had sort of had a little break of a few years where she'd been early on uh, in the development of IMSH and then had come back after a little break. So she shared some perspective on how things had changed and potentially how the simulation community as a whole has evolved. All right, so uh, we're here at IMSH, and I'm here with a friend who I've met on the floor called Amy Zhang. And I'm wondering, Amy, could you just introduce yourself and tell people what you do? Sure. I'm Amy Zhang. I am an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Diego. I run a large-scale IPE that is simulation-based for about 250 medical, nursing, and pharmacy students with about 100 faculty um, once a year for the last six years. And I used to come to IMSH relatively frequently, about every once every year uh, since 2012. And then I stopped coming for a while because I took on a different job uh, that's really not simulation related, even though I continue to run the event for the school. And so now I'm looking at a job change and looking to do more simulation. So I'm back here again, looking for ideas and building networks. Uh, so Amy was kind enough to respond to our Twitter call out for people who like to give some stories or share some perspectives. And one of the things that came up uh, was kind of sharing your perspective on how IMSH has maybe changed a bit or evolved over the last few years. Can you share with us your thoughts? Yeah. You know, I remember when I first joined, um, simulation was really a, new to a lot of people. They went to get ideas on uh, how to get programs started. And it seems like this time around, people have programs that have started and are looking at ideas on expanding. And I think their theme, uh, 
Now, of course, I can't remember what the theme is, but it's about redesigning and making things better. Um, really speaks to that. So I think it's very timely. Um, I mean, things that struck me was yesterday I was in the exhibit hall and as I was exiting and about to leave, I saw this, what I thought was a real life person on a table, uh, elderly patient. And then I saw a woman holding a baby, a newborn baby in her hand. And then I walked by and it was, you know, mannequin. And I couldn't believe how real things are now since 2012 when we used to have the skin that wouldn't stay on and you had to peel them off. And uh, so that's really exciting. The tech is always exciting. But there's still a lot of things that are still needs work. You know, I'm still hearing the same themes of we need to stop reinventing the wheel. We need to share resources. We need a place to deposit materials that we can share. That's what we were talking about in the Interprofessional Education Affinity Group. Uh, how do we even come up with a database of people with who are like-minded so that we can talk and run ideas by each other? So that's what we're looking to build right now. So I guess what I'm hearing from what you've said is that the kind of sim community as a whole has evolved and IMSH has evolved with it to sort of talk less about how do you start up and now more about extension and maturation, but also that we're maybe hung up on a few things that we haven't found a real solution for yet. Yeah, and I think part of it is that, you know, the conversation in the affinity group came up that we need more than once a year, right? Mm -hmm. That in order to keep the conversation going, we need a Facebook group or Reddit or Slack, something where we can collaborate mm -hmm. and perhaps have more meetings that are uh, subgroup based. Yeah. Every six months, every three months, we get together, we develop scenarios together, yeah. that okay. kind of thing. Cool. And do they talk about like the SSH forums at all in terms of that being an option? Or do you think the fact that that is sort of behind a firewall and behind, you know, having to log in and whatnot is a barrier that people maybe haven't engaged as much as they would with a social media format? See, we talked about that, um, but again, yeah, you, ha you have to be a member, uh, and uh, I let my membership lapse, so I have to decide, do I want to become a member just so I can get on the platform, or is there something that's more user-friendly that I'm already familiar with, like a Facebook group? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I think that's, uh, there's always that issue between sort of sustainable funding and accessibility and optimizing your audience and maximizing it versus uh, getting some money in the pot. Right, exactly. If you figure out how to get money in the pot, let me know. Yeah, I'll keep that in mind. And so in terms of highlights for you so far? I really enjoy meeting up with old friends, you know, people I, whose faces I uh, recognize from four years ago. It's great to see them again here. Uh, and then coming here with new friends that other friends have brought uh, and brainstorming ideas with them. As I'm going to these classes, we kind of debrief at the end of the day and go, what can, you know, what are you going with your, going to do with your next sim? What did you learn today? Let's share. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the most exciting part of it for me. I do find that some of the talks are a little more base, a little too basic for me. Yep. And uh, it's hard to tease that out just by looking at the agenda. Yeah, I think there's such a wide range. It can be hard to find the perfect fit for you because even though it's surely there somewhere, there's so many choices, it's, it's pretty kind of impressive, but it can be overwhelming, I guess, certainly for me as a new guy. Right. And everybody sims differently, right? Yep. Uh, you know, your sim, based on what your resources are, is going to be different than my sims. Mm. Uh, it's hard to make find one that fits yours exactly, yep. but you do want enough similarities that you can get something out of it. Mm. 
but enough differences that you go, ah, oh, that's what I need to make move to my next step. Yeah, yeah, cool. So I guess uh, at the end of the day, whatever the quality of an individual session, the human connection makes it all worthwhile. Exactly. Great. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, no, this is fun. Thanks. Great. All right. Yeah. Simulcast. All right. Well, Ben, it's been, uh, some would say, a long five episodes, but I certainly enjoyed the ride. Uh, I guess as we reflect back over really what is the biggest simulation conference in the world and a really packed program, I'm going to ask you for a couple of take-home messages. I'll give you mine first so you've got time to think about it. But uh, I guess at heart, although I love education and debriefing, I'm also still a gadget freak. And for me, one of the overwhelming take-homes was really uh, where we at with virtual reality and augmented reality. And I think having watched this area for the last 10 or 15 years, this year was the first time I really saw a lot of consumer price point uh, applications of virtual reality. And I think this is going to make a big difference to what we're doing in the next little while. And my second take-home point, uh, interestingly related to creativity, and I was very interested both in the keynote that Ken Robinson did, but also my own experience in running a workshop with uh, Laura Rock on storytelling and how that related to simulation. And the fact that we were booked out, had a packed 120 people in our session, I think just goes to show that um, the level of interest in new ways of doing things, new perspectives, and understanding about narratives and people is very much at the heart of simulation. So um, a couple of reflections from me now that we're a week down the track and uh, doing a final wrap podcast. Uh, what about you? Tell me, what were your couple of take-homes? Yeah, look, I guess in terms of new knowledge, the thing that I enjoyed the most from this conference was looking at clinical event debriefing and getting a chance to connect to a number of sort of prominent people around the globe who've had the guts to really roll this out, experiment with it and uh, get some data and publish what they found useful and what they found works. And I think my take home from those workshops was really that this is very much a new part of the debriefing field that is rapidly evolving and in some ways in its infancy um, and that there's a lot of room for us to contribute to the conversation and and uh, I think it's going to be an exciting sort of place to watch in sim as we hopefully move the conversations from the fake bedside to the real bedside. Apart from that, I think I'd have to sort of jump on top of your comments about creativity and connection and I think for me the the real highlights were sort of the warm fuzzy moments of meeting a lot of people that um, have been so supportive of Journal Club and of Simulcast in general over the last two and a half years um, watching Susan Ella sending out some very on point tweets throughout the conference uh, and just perennially being an incredibly supportive member of the community getting a chance to sit on the couch and at a pub and share a beer with Grace Ung and uh, Danny Lagasse uh, it was just wonderful and uh, so grateful to all of those people who've been supportive of uh, Simulcast and uh, the simulation community in general. It was so nice to meet them. Absolutely. Uh, very gratifying. So, Simulcast listeners, uh 
Thanks very much to our guests for sharing their wisdom and thank you for thinking about where we are at with uh, simulation at the beginning of 2019. For those of you who want to find out more, there will also be some follow-ups on the Society for Simulation Healthcare website, so that's ssih.org, plus watch that website for the details of next year's conference. So January 2020 back on the West Coast, uh, we'll look forward to um, seeing you there and uh, obviously more simulcasts to come. So thanks again, Ben. Absolutely. Thanks for a lovely trip. You're listening to Simulcast.